In chapter two, entitled Feeling White, Halsell tries to help us think a little more about what it means to be a white person or to inhabit a white racial identity. And one of the issues that Halsell talks about here is the effect of segregation in our lives. In general, she says, and the data bears this out, white people tend to live in somewhat isolated circles. Sometimes that segregation is institutionalized. If you think about housing discrimination, especially the FHA loans that we talked about last week, that's an obvious example of institutionalized segregation. But it's also a kind of cultural segregation, a kind of isolation. Many of our cultural, social, political, and religious institutions are racially distinct. Even if it's illegal to segregate schools, many of our schools are still functionally segregated because of access to housing. This has a bunch of downstream effects, such as who's on your kid's Little League team, what kinds of people you interact with at the grocery store, and who you worship with on Sunday mornings. Let's take our denomination as an example of that last point. In 2015, Pew Research conducted a survey to find out which were the most and least racially diverse religious groups in the United States. The most racially diverse were Seventh-day Adventists, Muslims, and Jehovah's Witnesses. Those groups are all more diverse than the U.S. adult population. The group that mirrors the U.S. racial demographics most closely is the Catholic Church. And if you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, the two groups with the least amount of racial diversity are the National Baptist Convention and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. One of those is a historically black denomination with its roots in the antebellum South. The other one is a denomination that is at least nominally open to everyone, that's historically nothing. In fact, the AME Church, which is another historically black church, has more racial diversity than the ELCA does. And there's a little bit of history that's interesting here, too. The ELCA was formed in the late 1980s as a merger of three Lutheran denominations. And if you go back and you read the original documents from its founding, you'll see they set a goal of at least 10% non-white representation in the denomination's members, pastors, and leadership. And that 10% number was originally 20. But at the convention, they decided that they would make it 10 so that when they got to 10% non-white representation, they could celebrate and then move up to 20% as the new goal but we never got to 10%. In 2015, we were at 4% non-white. Now, sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the numbers here, but Halsell is less concerned with the numbers themselves than with what they suggest and what they reveal about our relationships, which is that many of the spaces where we form meaningful relationships, think church, think school, think civic groups, are segregated. They're not legally segregated, but because of the legacies of legal segregation, the effect is the same. And the problem, at least in terms of religious life, comes when we Lutherans, people who just statistically tend to be white, assume that our own experience of race in the church is normal. You notice that above I called the National Baptist Convention in the, in the AME Church 
historically black denominations. That's the proper term that's used. But we should also be aware that the ELCA is a historically white denomination. The problem comes when we assume that whiteness is the normal or default position. And that just as you might look at a historically black denomination and assume that it has values and norms that reflect the experience of the black community, you should also do the same thing with a historically white congregation. It reflects the values and norms of the white communities that have been a part of it. So think about your own experience of church here, your own story. What has your experience of racial diversity been like in church? Has it been that church is racially homogenous? Has it been that church is racially diverse or somewhere in between? And how have those communities and the racial diversity in them changed the way that you form relationships? That's going to help us move into the second part of this week's reading. If you remember the subtitle of the book, it's called Helping White Christians Talk Faithfully About Racism. So Hellsell is going to pivot here and help think about how that experience of segregation affects the way we approach conversations about racism with people who've experienced it firsthand. Hellsell suggests that when we talk about racism, it's important to separate responsibility from what she calls responsibility. R-E-S-P-O-N-S-E, ability. Because of the historical foundations of racism, it can be hard for many white people to feel any sense of responsibility for it. As an example here, I was born in July of 1989, so I had nothing to do with segregation in FHA housing loans after World War II. I wasn't even alive to have anything to do with it. Or you could also think about this in the context of the killing of George Floyd. I was alive, but I don't live in Minneapolis. I'm not a police officer, so what responsibility do I have for his death? Halsell pivots here a little bit from thinking about responsibility as a kind of moral failing to asking what our response to encountering stories of racism is. She writes, quote, Often, Persons sharing their frustrations about racism need you to simply hear them, not to take personal responsibility. You can be response-able, having the ability to respond with compassion and care without needing to feel personally responsible. So being response-able in this sense means being able to hold someone's experience without jumping to being defensive or asking what our role in this is. And it means taking their anger over the situation seriously. In church, we often tend to think about anger as a bad thing, and we act like we shouldn't feel angry. But Helsell says that we actually should. Anger about injustice helps us to get motivated to make a better world. There's an old bumper sticker that says, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, which sort of gets to the same point. And when we think about our own responsibility, here it means creating spaces where people can express anger about injustice without being labeled as crazy, or even worse, telling them their anger about the injustice is worse than whatever the injustice was. So instead of defending ourselves from someone's experience, or trying to minimize it, or trying to fix it, just start by taking it seriously. 
Being response-able in this way allows us to help others feel seen, heard, and appreciated. In closing, let's try to pull this together if we can. These are some questions for you to think about. What has your experience of race in your community, your neighborhood, been like? Is it racially mixed? Is it fairly integrated? Or is it fairly segregated? Where you don't have lots of incidental conversations and relationships across racial lines? And then let's take that a step further. How has that community experienced or changed the way you respond to conversations about racism? When someone brings up the topic of racism in your community, do you feel defensive? Do you feel relief? Do you feel accused? Do you feel like you're able to respond in some way? And how does that emotional response affect your ability to hear someone else's experience? Those are some questions to reflect on this week. Next week, we're going to be finishing chapter two, and we're going to be talking about political correctness. Thank you.